This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks direct from the stages of the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. More and more women from around the world are using podcasting to talk about all of the big feminist issues. So, as part of All About Women 2018, we invited some of the finest podcasters around to record live episodes at the festival. Of course, this had to include the wildly popular Guilty Feminist podcast, and its host, comedian Deborah Francis-White, brought the laughs and the politics to the festival. She's here with co-host Geraldine Hickey as they deal with the small issue of 10,000 years of gender imbalance. I'm a feminist, but when I was backstage here at the Sydney Opera House, I was so overwhelmed to be here I sent my husband, Tom Selinsky, a message saying, I feel teary, and autocorrect changed it to, I feel ready. (laughs) And I thought, wow, autocorrect is a feminist. (laughs) I always thought of autocorrect as a white, straight cis man because all it does is change things because it thinks it knows better when it ducking well doesn't. But it can't be because it never lets you write the word... That you wanted to write. Which is always F-U-C-K. Never lets you use it. It doesn't like it. It's stuck. Maybe it just doesn't like women using it. Do you think that? Do you think it lets men use it? (laughs) I'd never thought of that. I'm a feminist, but I am absolutely obsessed. I feel like this is a confessional, actually. It is a bit like a confessional. Mm. I'm absolutely obsessed with a dating show on TV that's on now that is basically about arranged marriages. <laughs> it's called Married at First Sight. Please tell me I'm not alone in this room. All right, and I even try to justify it to my friends and people around me at my work that watching a show like this in these current Me Too times... Mm that this is a way we can witness the bad behaviour that we're calling out. So (laughs) I am the worst. I am justifying my essentially a soap opera addiction and a horrific premise for a television show by using feminism. (laughs) I'm a feminist, but when I was a kid, I had a crush on Craig McLaughlin and and Rolf Harris. (laughs) soft spot for Don Burke. If you're listening internationally, Google it. It wasn't a crush on Don Burke. It was more like, oh, he's like your uncle. So I, I didn't see it coming. I'm sorry. I was naive. Who saw it coming? He was so lovely to the vegetables. So lovely to the vegetables. So lovely Have you seen that YouTube footage? Oh, my goodness. Too lovely. Okay, I'm a feminist, but as a short person, I will never wear a flat shoe, even though I'm playing right into the hands of the patriarchy. Ironically, flats are my Achilles heel. (laughs) I'm a feminist, but last week I had a dream I was talking to Virginia Woolf and she was trying to tell me something important that women needed to know but it was in French and I couldn't understand it. And I tried to write it down so I could look it up later. And so I was, I was writing. And when I looked up from the paper, she turned into Kanye West. (laughs) 
which my unconscious did. But to be honest, the Virginia Woolf was the Nicole Kidman Virginia Woolf with a prosthetic nose from the hours. So I don't know that she had that much to tell us anyway. But I did feel like portal to proto-feminism, early 20th century modernist feminism. And I thought I should bring the message back. No, no. it was just Kanye there talking about gold diggers. Well, this leads me to my next one. I'm a feminist, but one of my favourite song lyrics is, if you're having girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I've got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. Hit me. (laughs) No one else? (laughs) Live from the Sydney Opera House, represents the guilty feminist, with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host, Mick Warhurst, and a very special guest, Tracy Spicer, talking about taking a risk. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. Have you had a guilty week or a feminist week, Miff? I think every week's a feminist week. Yeah. You? Guilty and feminist, mostly feminist, I think. Because, yeah, coming on here tonight and thinking about what I feel guilty about, it was actually quite hard. Oh, really? Yeah. Did you find it hard to do the I'm a feminist butts because you're such a good feminist? I, f- I feel You've like... You've alienated half the crowd. <laughs> I always know who the guilty crowd is and who the feminist crowd is. I mean, we're all guilty and feminist. That's the point of the show. That is the point. But I do feel quite strongly that some people lean heavily into one camp or another. <laughs> I I do feel like though times have changed so much that more and more I'm very much more aware of what I do every day as Mm. opposed to, say, ten years ago when I was probably an appalling feminist and I think that's... We've all upped our game in the last few years, let's be honest. Let's be honest. Society's demanded (laughs) it. However, I do need to discuss something that's very important with you, Mm. Deborah. Cameron Daddo. Oh, mm. yes. Mm. That's his name, isn't it? I did get the name you right. You did get his yeah, name yeah. right. The I'll... one that used to do Perfect Match. Yes. My Australian references are a bit outdated, I'm not going to lie to you guys. <laughs> I haven't lived here for a long time. I must say, I haven't thought about him since about 1992, but I did love him. And I know he's on very successful American TV shows now, but I was also desperately in love with his partner at the time, who was the Dolly Cover Girl as well. She was like the Alison somebody... Alison Bray, that's correct. Mm. So for me, they were like, well, we can't even say it anymore, Jennifer Aniston and Justin Theroux of our times, even though that's over as well. That is over, yeah, that's over. But let's not be sad because it's not sad when women are single. It's not, though, it's not. We always go, oh, poor Jen. It's like, do you know what? She's fine. She's, she is so fine. She's in work. She's on more than the minimum wage, substantially. <laughs> She's got people who love her and she's got 12 houses. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. I love that Jen exists and she keeps basically saying, no, I will not answer these questions, mm. anymore, whether it comes to her pregnancy or whatever, you know, the no, 75 million times. She's just never been pregnant. Sometimes she goes running and her stomach is not actually concave. Mm. That's what happens. If her stomach is not concave, if there's not a significant interior dip immediately the press say she's pregnant and then she goes still not pregnant (laughs) but I take her as like inspiration because I'm you know in my 40s and I've had a few goes and let's be honest they haven't worked out that well so more and more I feel like women are getting to a point whereby 
it's absolutely fine. And you know what? Sometimes a better option to be single. Just give us a cheer if you think it's easier. It's a better option to be single. Come on! Now, how many of you who cheered are with someone? <laughs> exactly. Yes, it was like a cry for freedom. That was a cry for help. So today we're talking about taking a risk. We're talking about being risk takers as feminists because as feminists we need sometimes to take a risk. Um, the feminist movement seems to be taking all sorts of risks at the moment. Me too, time's up. Every time we leave the house, to be honest, we have to fight the patriarchy. I feel we need to bring back suffragettes. Um, seriously, did you know that the suffragettes learnt jiu-jitsu? Seriously, in the early 1900s, the suffragettes, in their long dresses, with their big hats, took martial arts to fend off the police because they were being attacked and anybody who wanted to attack them. When we were in London, Jessica Vosticuse suggested we take up Me Too Kondo. That's fantastic. Yeah, I feel like we do need some kind of martial art uh, in order to be truly risk-taking. Do you take risks at the moment? Or have you recently taken a risk? Well, I, th I feel like going to work every day is a bit of a risk at the moment because I've just started a new job, which mm. requires me to talk on radio solidly for an hour and a half every single day, which doesn't sound too terrifying if you've been doing it for 20 years like I have, but for some reason, <laughs> for some reason, it's terrifying. I've been going to work every day going, what if this falls over? What if I run out of things to say? What if I muck it up so badly that the whole thing just falls apart while well, just I'm you just stop on talking air. on radio you just, yeah, just you just go i'm happened? done i have nothing to say and you just stopped <laughs> yes exactly but it's actually really liberating every day to feel that terrified and i'm sure six more weeks down the track it'll be equally fine mm. but at the moment every day is like oh my god i'm on a cliff and i feel like i'm about to fall and i hope that you can't hear it by the way when you're listening wherever you are in your car or you're at home but it feels like you're about to fall off a cliff every single day and I'm really enjoying it in a really perverse way but also at the same time it's terrifying. Do you think if you were a straight white cis man who was, had been broadcasting as long as you had and you've had a long television career as well, mm. do you think a man in your position would be going, oh, God, what if I suddenly forget how to radio? No. No. I don't. That's so the thing. And every day I would love to walk in, you know, walk into a room with the confidence of a middle-aged white guy. And I tell myself that every day. Mm. But still, it seems to be a lot of outside forces that somehow infect my thinking that maybe I'll mess it up or maybe I'm not good enough. And I'm really even surprised by myself at this stage in my career that I feel that frightened. Do you think it's because women are told that you don't only get so many chances and over 40 you only get one chance. I mean, there's, there's a diminishing returns for women, let's be clear. I mean, once you've either had a baby or could have had one, there's a limit in their minds to how long you can continue. Definitely, I do think so. And it's been really good to do this because I also am working really hard to stop thinking about life in those definitive terms. I haven't had a successful long-term relationship that means you end up with all those normal things. So why should I think anything different about the way I live my career? Why is it only good to a certain point? So what you're saying is if you haven't found a man who's good enough that you're prepared to commit to him forever, why should you find a job? Exactly. 
It just, yeah. it should always keep moving forward. It doesn't come to an end. And okay, so Tom Zielinski, who edits this podcast, is my husband. Uh, if you're listening, Tom, it's over. Um, <laughs> Miff's just convinced me to move forward. I really need to take a risk on this relationship. So it's been great. <laughs> Please Poor don't Tom, stop. I'm sorry. Please don't stop producing the podcast. You can tell him yourself he listens to every second of this many times to get the edit right. So, you know. He is a good man. Yeah. No. Maybe you should keep him around. I mean, do you want him? I mean, that's... <laughs> Just to keep it fresh and keep it in the family, no, myth. Exactly. Listen, he's such a good man, I wouldn't want him going to waste. If I did give him up, I would offer him around to a close circle of friends. I mean... <laughs> I've got top six friends that I'd go, you can have a go. I mean, he cooks, he produces your work. He's got cats. He's got two... Well, they're our cats, I think. He'd get one in the divorce. I'd get the other one. I'd get the good one. Um, To be honest, Mimi shows affection by leaving the room. Please welcome to the stage, Deborah Francis-White, ladies and gentlemen. Hello. So I took a risk recently. I am writing a book called The Guilty Feminist, um, which is exciting. When they asked me to write the book, I was like, of course, I'd love to write a book. Who doesn't want to write a book? It's brilliant. Lovely to get to write a book. Don't write a book, guys. Definitely... <laughs> It's the worst thing in the world. It's so long. It's so hard and so long. I wrote to my editor the following email that said, it's both 4am and 4pm because I was jet-lagged and it felt like both times. And this book will never end. Books never end. You must have known that. You are a book editor. Why did you not tell me that books never end? Can you sell this email to somebody? This is writing. Does someone want to publish this? Please sell this email. It's all I've got. (laughs) Fortunately, she found that funny and didn't genuinely think I was having a breakdown and cancel the publication. But when I had a lot less... I mean, this is rewrites now that I'm doing. I've sort of finished now, really. But at this point, I really only had two-thirds of the book and it was January and I needed a whole book. And so my friend said, do you know what I do when I need to focus? I go away to this juice retreat up a Spanish mountain. Because if you only drink juice, they just make juice for you. You drink juice four times a day, soup in the evening, three juices and a soup. And you get all of this energy and it's really, truly amazing. That's what she said and that's what she promised. That's what she said. She said it's amazing and you will get laser focus. She said it's incredible. You get all this energy. And I was like, really? Because I'm, I'm a, I'm a f- food liker. And uh, she said, no, no, honestly, Deborah, you've got to go up the mountain and only have the juice. And I promise you, I absolutely promise you, you will absolutely be able to finish the book. And I had so much book to finish and so little time to finish it in. I was convinced by this and I thought, you know what, I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to go up the Spanish mountain and commit to the juice in order that I come down the mountain like Moses (laughs) with some wisdom. And while I was there, I kept a diary, which I'm now going to read to you. Day one, I arrive at the mountain. The place is large and calm. I meet the other juice retreaters. We have soup before bed. We all agree it would be better with bread. But it's fine. I am not hungry and don't intend to be. 
I think, this is easy. And it turns out I am the kind of person who will enjoy a week-long juice retreat. <laughs> day two. I wake up in time for the first juice of the day. It's important to get up because if you miss your juice window, there's no more juice for hours. I drink the juice. <laughs> Selinsky, my husband, has been up for hours. He's got up early to go on an official organised juice retreat walk in the mountains. And then, all he has is juice. He's fine. Why isn't he starving? He should be starving and fainting. How is he fine? We gather for the induction. A perky woman called Tamara stands up the front. Now, your friends all think you're mad coming on this, don't they? They've probably said you're mad and it's dangerous just to drink juice. No, no, I think none of, none of my friends have said that. They've said, I wish I was coming, or what a great start to January. I wish I had your willpower. This sounds great. We shake our heads. Tamara looks at us. They did say that. I know they did, she insists. And if they didn't say it to your face, they said it behind your back. I feel paranoid now. If you were on Instagram drinking and doing drugs in Las Vegas, they'd say you were living the life. But you come up a mountain to drink juice and they say you're mad. They say you're brainwashed. Who takes drugs on Instagram, I think? Don't the police look there? Tamara continues. You come to put good nutrients in your body and they say you're mad, you're brainwashed, you've joined a cult. Do they? Who's saying that? What? When? Should I send my friends a reassuring email to let them know I'm okay? Lunchtime. Day two. I am overcome with a crippling headache. Not only can I not write, I cannot hold my head up or see light. <laughs> Tamara assures me this is caffeine withdrawal headache and will pass. I assure Tamara it is everything withdrawal headache. <laughs> And what if it doesn't? She suggests napping in a hanging womb basket, which puts the body automatically into the fetal position. She also suggests an enema. I try the hanging womb basket and nap for 30 minutes, waking five hours later. No book written. Night time. We have soup, but no bread. Where is the bread? I need bread. What is soup without bread? It is hunger. It is despair. It is bleakness. Tamara tells me I can have one official juice retreat power bar made of dates and nuts without ruining it. I have three. <laughs> I sleep badly, waking up hungry and headachey. This risk has not paid off. I see now there can be no book writing without food eating. And there is no food eating up this mountain and no way off. I feel more like Gilligan than Ginger. <laughs> Day three. Selinsky goes off for another early group walk. How are his legs working? <laughs> this confirms my suspicion that my husband is not a man but a Black Mirror app. <laughs> he comes back refreshed and enjoys his juice. He reports no change in his body and that he is not hungry. I receive my first contact from the outside world. A message from Ned Sedgwick, my sidekick on Global Pillage. He has an admin question. I tell him of my painful hunger and ask if there is any way to send a sandwich up a Spanish mountain. I tell him of my inability to focus and Tom's ability to go on long walks with no apparent difficulty. Deborah, he writes back. 
he is walking to McDonald's. <laughs> that is why he is fine. No, I say, he's going with a group led by Tamara. This corruption goes all the way to the top, he replies. <laughs> After another afternoon in the womb basket, moaning, Tamara assures me the juice high and superhuman focus will kick in sometime in the next few days. It needs to kick in now, I reply. I have a book to write. That night we watched Dr. Foster, a BBC drama about a doctor whose husband is cheating on her. There are more luscious dinner parties in this show than are possible to imagine. Dr. Foster and her cheating husband constantly eat pasta dripping with tomato sauce and drink crisp white wine from oversized glasses. I am sure there is tiramisu in more than one scene. I have two and a half power bars and then the other half of the third. I sleep. Day three. I wake up at 7am. More alive and awake than I've ever been in my life. I feel like a meerkat on amphetamines. <laughs> I jump out of bed and go down to the gym because I need to run for half an hour before I have my juice. I sit down at the laptop and type like Jack Nicholson in The Shining, only every sentence is different. <laughs> Day three to five, no diary because I only write the book. Day six, our final session with Tamara is a make-your-own-juice session. She tells us that when we go home, we will need to make and drink our own juice all the time and suggest various ways of replacing meals and food with refreshing juice. I am sold. Juice is cocaine for healthy people. <laughs> I will juice every day, I think. When you go back home, all your friends will say you've been brainwashed and are in a cult. The best way to convince them that you're not is to have a party and get them to try the juice. party is I'm not in a cult then passing out Kool-Aid is probably not the way forward at your party you should show these videos of why juicing is good for you and get them to sign up for a retreat she says she passes out branded towels with a logo that says juice you can give this as a prize at your party she says this will not help with the narrative about not being brainwashed I think I leave the juice mountain full of energy and vigour with a complete book ready to be published. Turns out it wasn't ready. It was like five rewrites. <laughs> My risk paid off and I am not in a cult. I am not in a cult. I am not in a cult. I come home. I remember bread. I forget juice. <laughs> Thank you. Our guest today is somewhat of a legend in the Australian Me Too movement. Uh, she also has a viral TED talk and is one of the most inspirational people at this incredible festival. Please put your hands together for the wonderful Tracy Spicer! <laughs> So, Tracy, have you done any juicing? Have you ever been up a mountain to do something like that? And I won't be doing it after that story. No, it's, true. it's true. No, seriously, though, if you have a book to write, don't expect to write anything for the first two days, but after that, it does turn you into something of a... 
I think speed freak is the right thing to say. Speed freak. It did work. The risk did pay off. And from what I can gather, though, everything comes out. It's not just the writing. It's like, you know, <laughs> what a full cleanse. I can't talk about scatology myth. I don't know if you know that, but I have a, a genuine phobia of it. It's very triggering. <laughs> I must admit I'm here as a guilty feminist. This is the first time I've worn nail polish in 15 oh, years. wow. And the reason I'm wearing it, my 11-year-old daughter down there put it on, is because a friend sent it to me in suffragette purple for the festival and the colour is called Good Girl Gone Bad. Oh. <laughs> nice. Is that your I'm a feminist part? <laughs> Yes, I'm guilty about the nail polish, but good girl gone bad, I'm very proud of. Yeah, I bought a lipstick because it was called Activist. <laughs> Actually, last time I was in Melbourne, I went shopping with my sister and I bought some red patent leather, sort of punky boots because I wanted to go on marches. And I thought, I need to get... You know, like you get an actor, you get into the character. I sort of felt like, no, I'm going to feel more punk and more like, yeah... The system, you know, <laughs> overthrow the system if I'm in punk boots. And my sister said, you can't buy capitalist boots in order to overthrow the system. And I was like, well, I have. So, <laughs> and I've overthrown the system with them a number of times since I bought them. I guarantee you the system is not entirely overthrown, but I've given it a good kick. Small steps, small steps. <laughs> small steps in the punk boots. So, um, Tracy. You are one of the forerunners of the Australian Me Too movement. And if you're here today and you're not sure what that is, or you're listening internationally, uh, do you want to sum up what the Me Too movement and the Australian Me Too movement is? It could be described simply as how my colleague Kate McClymont at Fairfax describes me as Australia's official sex pest reporter. Wow. It's something one dreams of as a child. Yes. Presumably, as a small child, you thought, I hope one day I'll be the official sex pest reporter. So you've uncovered or, or contributed to the uncovering of various people. Don Burke um, from Burke's Backyard. Did everyone know? Everyone in the industry knew about Don Burke. It was an open secret. But what happened was, has anyone heard about the missing stare phenomenon here? No. If you've got a missing stare in a house, there's a structural fault. So really, you fix the stair to make sure the structure's sound. In a workplace, it's the same. If there's someone who is a serial sexual harasser, you get rid of them, right? But no, with people like Don Burke, workplaces just have a whispering campaign to work around them. Mm. So instead of fixing the structural fault in the workplace, they just work around the person. For example, there'd be a chaperone if young women were working with Don Burke. But everyone knew and no one ever punished him for it. I remember Rolf Harris, because he was working in uh, the UK, I remember it just being said, oh, he's handsy. That's how he was described. Yeah. And they're like, if you go into a radio station with Rolf Harris, just be aware he will grab you in places you don't wish to be grabbed. So exactly, work around that. So, you know, back out of the room, uh, you know, circle him, behave like a shark, I suppose. <laughs> if Rolf Harris were to encounter a shark, what would the shark do? do that is was the sort of you're like I shouldn't really have to be sort of circling and reverse parking in order to stop somebody touching me in the workplace uninvited and clearly unconsensually so what's going on here was it management say at channel nine that's enabling somebody like Don Burke or I heard also he was sort of outsourced in a way he was in charge of his own production company and put to the side so therefore there was very little control of what he was doing and maybe very little blame placed back 
on the media organisation. And very little legal liability on behalf of Nine. A couple of things are going on here. The perpetrators are protected and, in fact, promoted, similar to what we've seen with churches moving on a priest to a different parish. Mm. The survivors... Well, he moved on to more backyards. He was moved on to different types of plants, you know. (laughs) Uh, So there's that. But there's also that code of mateship. So there are a lot of blokes that worked with him that found him to be a bully but didn't want to speak out against him because it's like you don't talk out against one of your mates, you don't talk out against another bloke and that's got to end. You know what I don't get though? How can you be mates with someone who does that? They talk about this code but I think something's wrong with your code if you think that it's okay to... I think it's so... Condone that sort of behaviour. I think especially when people have the extra credibility of fame, a lot of people don't want to distance themselves from that or they think their employment opportunities will be lessened. And if the whole culture is one where everyone knows and no one does anything, it's endorsed. You put out a tweet saying you were investigating. What was the response on Twitter from that? So far, and I sent it out in the middle of October, I've had more than 1,600 women disclose their experiences of sexual harassment and indecent assault. And a couple of men, some really interesting disclosures from men, one man called up and said, so do you reckon you can fix this in five years? And I said, I'll give it a crack. Why? He said, because my daughter's 14 and she's going into the workforce and I don't want her to be groped and grabbed the same way as I used to grope and grab women in the workplace. It's been interesting. I mean, it's, that's an entitlement, isn't it? That's an entitlement. Could it stop now? Because I'm about done. <laughs> and somebody I invented is coming into the workplace. That seems like a good enough time to end it. Call time. Sure, time's up now. How extraordinary. Have men responded in other ways? What else have they said? There have been some wonderful men who've been supportive, telling us stories and all of that kind of stuff. There's actually been a lot of men who've been sexually harassed in the workplace too. But like the domestic violence situation, the offenders are usually men. It's very rare for a woman to sexually abuse or sexually harass a younger man. And that's to do with entitlement and the fact that very few women are in positions of power over men in the workplace. And do you think that's it? Like, you're looking at MPs now, aren't you? How is that going where you're actually focusing on Canberra? Because Australia has really strong defamation laws, doesn't it? The toughest in the world. So it's really difficult, even if you've got all the facts, you know, and obviously it changes from state to state, but if you damage someone's reputation, you can still cop a defamation suit, even if everything you've said is truthful. I was going to ask, it's such a risk for you personally to be doing this. How do you get past that fear in order to keep doing it? Is it because of what you're doing for women in general and the men that have been abused? I'm fortunate to have some wonderful people in my life, including my husband, because when I came home after I sent out the tweet, I said, I think I'm going to have to investigate people who are sexually harassing others in the workplace. And he said, are we going to lose our house? (laughs) And I said, look... There is a risk with Australia's defamation laws and lack of First Amendment protection like they do in the US. And he thought about it for a couple of days and he said, OK, let's do it. Wow. And that's awesome. So that's why it's really important this to have male some, allies. Some, some men are allies and some men get it that women should not, in, just in order to do their job or go out into the world, have to 
deal with this, have to constantly live in fear of it. And, and it grinds you down. I think just always knowing it's there, even if you are sort of circling it and you know, oh, well, there's going to be a chaperone. There's this low-level tension all the time in women's lives where we have to be extra careful and we have to be seen never to be encouraging anything or, oh, did you lead him on? So it is something that we just have to eradicate. We have to for the next generation. Yeah, it um, has so to stop. Thanks for potentially losing your house. Yeah. How, My pleasure. How likely are you to be sued, do you think? Or do they tend to come after the paper? Look, it's fortunate. I have protection with the media organisations that I'm writing for. But it's interesting what you spoke about, that low-level tension and fear that women live with and we become accustomed to. Every single woman who's contacted me, the first thing she says is... I feel so ashamed. And that can be anything. It can be from, did I do something subliminally that he read as me leading him on? Or I complained to the manager, but I never went to the police. I feel so ashamed. So part of this Me Too movement, the exciting part is, yes, women are taking risks by speaking out, but they are being believed. And that is tremendous. That will change everything. Yeah, and the architecture will change because men now feel they can support and they can come out and the structures will not always support the more powerful. What needs to change with the defamation laws in this country to make it more workable? Because we know that allegedly Craig McLaughlin is implicated and we can only say allegedly. We must keep saying it in every sentence. Allegedly. Because I, I have a flat too. And uh, <laughs> allegedly Craig McLaughlin allegedly is going to sue people. Allegedly. Allegedly, yes. We need to change the defamation laws because at the moment they protect the rich and the powerful. And I'll give you a really concrete example of that. I wrote my book, The Good Girl Stripped Bear. It came out last year. I named some media offenders in that. And one of them was a really senior executive at a television network who groped me on the bum at a Christmas party. The uh, book went through two lawyers and both of them said... You cannot say this about him. I said he is a repeat offender who has molested hundreds of people across the network over 20 or 30 years. They said, yes, but he is rich and he is litigious, so we are taking his name out. And that is where it really works to protect the perpetrators. So it's easier to let these people go than it is to actually take action. That's so distressing, isn't mm. it? So MPs, the politicians of Australia, we definitely won't put this on the podcast. Who are they? We just want to know. Yeah. Which MPs? Sister, Which this MPs? is not the first time at this particular rodeo for me, so I won't be mentioning any names. But there's something problematic that's happening in the political space. I'm getting phone calls from MPs of the right saying, oh, that guy of the left, he's a serial offender. And I'm getting guys from the left calling up going, that guy from the right, they call him the octopus. So how do you tell wow. the difference then between somebody who's genuinely motivated and somebody who's actually got a bone to pick with somebody who wants to put them in a position where they make their lives very difficult. That's what we're grappling with at the moment because it's got to be watertight. Like with Don Burke, we worked for six to eight weeks with a team of 12 to 14 people. We had not only the four or five women who went on air and on the record, we had dozens. We probably had about 50 or 60 others. 50 or 60? When, oh, yeah. when did we Don Burke get time to do his job? <laughs> 50 or 60? God, it, was he really watering those roses or was he... That's extraordinary. 50 yeah. or 60? Wow. So with politics, we're probably going to have to take longer to take the hidden agenda out of it. 
Right, because sometimes they're point scoring. But do you think they point score and go after someone who is known to do it, but they think, well, if you're going to take out one of ours, we'll take out one of yours? Well, to use a garden analogy, they're probably choosing the low-hanging fruit first. Mm. Yes. Pruning, pruning, yeah. Um, <laughs> so if someone from the Liberal Party rings you up and says, oh, there's a guy in Labour, you should go after him, and then someone from the Labour Party rings up and goes, they put one of us in the hospital, we'll put one of theirs in the morgue. Um, <laughs> Sort of mafia style. You have to investigate every single claim. Oh, definitely, and that's why it takes so long. And then you've got the crossbenchers. So the crossbenchers are approaching us and you've got to look at how the House is balanced at the moment. So it's become highly political and very toxic. Well, in this time of what's been happening with Barnaby Joyce as well, how much do people know about all of these figures? Will it be a surprise? Will it be like Don Burke? No surprises to everybody that works in Canberra. Or will it be a surprise when it comes to some of those figures? Some will be a surprise and some not. The Barnaby Joyce one is a really interesting case because a lot of journalists knew about this relationship but decided not to run the story because it was a consensual relationship. Now with what Monica Lewinsky's come out with, there's a really... uh, you know, nuanced discussion about consent. Men in power, younger women with less power. Is it really consensual or does it feed into this whole narrative of sexual harassment not by women's choice? Mm. So what's next, do you think? What's after the Me Too movement? Because we're making real headway here and something's really changing. But where do you think feminism is going now? Time's Up is really exciting and we're about to launch something in two weeks. It's not called Time's Up because of copyright issues. But I'm working with a wonderful collective of women where it's going to be really broad because storytelling is important but storytelling puts women at risk. You know, look at Christy Whelan-Brown after speaking out about Craig. She's been trolled mercilessly and relentlessly. So storytelling has a part but I think we really need to contact our MPs and get them to change legislation. Contact business leaders and say what policies do you have in place for sexual harassment this is not good enough get a fighting fund for women who can't afford it because it's costly and very few payouts are issued so we need to look to the next generation education in schools and make this a much broader movement and also answer the question why didn't they come out before they didn't come out before because when they did come out they weren't believed they went to the boss they went to the head of production and they were moved on or they were edged out things got awkward and they always protected the very famous and influential man and sometimes they did a payout And as the woman was not going to get justice and all she was going to get was the money and she was not able to work with him again, she would take the money to live on because that's all she was going to get. Do you think some women will now start transgressing their NDAs, their non-disclosure agreements? I have been for 13 years, so I think that I would recommend that women do that. Did you have a non-disclosure agreement? I did, after being sidelined and then sacked after returning from maternity leave. There's a huge international discussion at the moment about whether confidentiality agreements are actually another way of crushing women. So I think we'll see not only women breaching those agreements, but organisations being forced to not do those agreements in the first place. A lot of my friends are lawyers who work in this space and they actually feel really ashamed about encouraging women to sign these confidentiality agreements in the past because they have been a way of silencing women. Mm. So do you think the age of confidentiality will be over and people will just have to behave better? <laughs> like, cause, Let's yeah, hope so. Because we, yeah. we could make the men sign an agreement that they won't touch anyone who doesn't want to be touched. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's idea. Yeah. It is that simple, isn't it? it yeah, it is. Instead it really of, is instead of oh, can you sign this and not say anything if someone breaks the law, 
Maybe, or we all don't break the law. Yeah, just behave and just make, yourself. And make better laws that protect victims and protect people who are being taken advantage of. And of course, we always have to remember as well that this is, you know, the high profile cases are with famous people and with people who work in entertainment industry or politics. And sometimes the women in those industries are being exploited who are on, you know, much, much, much lower wages than Don Burke everyone was on much lower wages than Don Burke, let's be clear. But same in Canberra. There'll be assistants and people who were on nearly nothing. But in all of those industries, there is a sort of glamour and a protection that there isn't in the food service industry, for example. Oh, yeah, definitely. And this is where the Time's Up Australia movement will go, using the power and profile of women in the media and entertainment industry to raise the funds to help women in the lowest paid industries. Because when you think about retail and hospitality, you know, insecure work, young women working there, that's who we've got to help. Is that the end? goal for something like you're doing to make money in order to be able to fund more programs and more of these investigations is that the aim well more support for women in low-paid industries so they can take legal action or you know if they want to go to the media they can that's not the main aim certainly to get them counseling is the first step because counseling is really really difficult to come by when you're right in the middle of these things also education programs on consent for the next generation so they know you know, for boys and girls, a lot of talk about educating girls, but we need to educate boys not to do this stuff. Well, it's coming out in charities as well now, like organisations like yeah. Oxfam and, the, you know, the, just extraordinary things, sexual assault of vulnerable women as well. It came out recently that women were being asked to exchange sex for aid in, you know, just terrible things. And you just think, if even men who work for charities, what's wrong with our society? Why is this so endemic in every industry? What is wrong with our society? I hate to tell you, but charities are some of the worst because women won't go on the record about it because they believe in the greater good. Mm. They say, this man's doing wonderful stuff in, say, the anti-poverty space or the helping asylum seekers space or whatever it is, and we don't want to damage or taint the cause, so we will just put up with this in the workplace, and that's terrible. So you see it happening in all workplaces where there's a lot of men in positions of power and a lot of women in low-paid low-profile, low-power roles. It's such a difficult time right now because there's so much negativity and, and it feels so heavy every day. It's almost like what horror story are we going to hear next? Do you feel like there is a turning point on the way? Do you... Oh, yeah. The turning point's now. We're at a seminal moment in history. I did a session this afternoon with Tarana Burke who started the Me Too movement in 2007, all those years ago. And she spoke about how this movement's about joy. She's absolutely right because every woman who's disclosed to me and I've said to her, actually, you're not the first person who's disclosed about this particular fellow. They've said, oh, my goodness, I feel like such a weight has been lifted because of the gaslighting that goes on over the years. They say, oh, my goodness, I feel like I feel amazing. You know, the fact that they have survived this, they can talk about it. It's incredibly cathartic. So I think there is great positivity to come out of this too. I feel the next generation coming up also just won't accept it. Yeah. Um, I think they've seen this. This has been in the news. And I think women who are now girls, teenagers and girls, will just say absolutely not. And they will find ways to structurally support each other. And also the next generation of young men, I see how they respond. I went to a university recently in the UK and the young men coming up going, I love your podcast, love your podcast, I'm such a fan. And I'm like, really? Like you're an 18-year-old man. And they're like, oh, I just love it so much and I learn so much from it. And I'm like, wow, this is really exciting. So I feel this next generation will save us if we can get the planet into their hands. 
that's the problem, Genuinely isn't it? Genuinely, though. We've got to take Genuinely. it mainly out of a man with very tiny hands right now, <laughs> I think. Please follow The Guilty Feminist on all of your social medias. Rate, review and subscribe. Give it however many stars you like, as long as it's five. Um, and uh, it helps other people find the podcast. Uh, do you have anything to plug, Miff? Anything to plug? Goodness me, that radio show that I told you I'm terrified about every single day. <laughs> no. Tune in to hear Miff be frightened, but only for six more weeks. Only for six more weeks and then more she'll weeks and sail be fine, in. I promise, yeah. I promise. What's your radio show called? Well, it's just called me, Miff Warhurst, which is super weird. I don't even have... Anything. Me, Miff Warhurst. That's it. Yeah. Right. Where, where can we listen to it? ABC, local radio, all around the country, 12.30 until 2. Oh, so tune into ABC Local, but wherever you are, Miff is local to you. That's, that's not right. how local radio works, Miff. No, that's I how know. national radio works. I know, and that's why it's also terrifying because mm. I'm a national program on a local it's radio. It's hard network. to drop in local references, <laughs> isn't it? It is. I can't do time calls. I can't do, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's busy down the main street of such and such today. Yeah. And, uh, Sue's dress shop. Sue's dress shop's looking nice. Yeah. Yeah. Just say that. Everyone's got a Sue's dress shop. <laughs> exactly. Um, Tracy, do you have anything to plug? Any books or lovely things we can get of yours? I've actually started a business with two friends to amplify women's voices called Outspoken Women. So Excellent. Hear us roar! Outspoken Women. So we go to outspokenwomen.com? That's exactly right. I've guessed it. There you go. It's just, I mean, I'm like Darren Brown. Um, I would like to say, I mentioned before my sister's in, my mother's in as well, and I just want to say... I just want to say thank you very much to my mother because without you, I would not be here. So thank you for all the sandwiches and love. Thank you for driving me to Mrs. Leggett to drama lessons. Sadly, she's no longer with us, but happily you are. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming and raising me and all of that lovely stuff uh, that led me here today to the Opera House. I did have a bit of a weep when I walked. It's just emotional when you get here. You don't think it's going to be, and then you just go, I'm at the Opera House. Because I came here as a child, and then you just think, you know, it's amazing. Anyway, can I just say what a great honour it's been to be at the Sydney Opera House, and a huge thank you to all of the staff here who've been absolutely incredible. Tech, behind stage, putting all this together, getting women from all over the world to come here for this weekend. A big round of applause for everyone at the Sydney Opera House. I love, I love that our technician is clapping. He's in the box. He's in the box going, I'm one of very few men. I'm giving myself a round of applause. It's been quite a tough hour for you, hasn't it, really? Yeah, he's feeling a bit sad about his tribe. Listen, it's not our fault you've got Don Burke. Um, it's just the way the cookie crumbles. Do you know what you've also got? Better pay, mate. Um, <laughs> power and influence. I know you're thinking now, I don't have power and influence because you've got the mic, but you can turn it off at any moment. <laughs> oh, and I'm back in business. I'm not back in business. I'm back in business. I'm back in business. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host, Miff Warhurst, and our very special guest, Tracy Spicer. The producer was Tom Selinski for the Spontaneity Shop and the Sydney Opera House. Thanks to everyone at the All About Women Festival, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. That was Deborah Francis-White and Geraldine Hickey in the live podcast episode of The Guilty Feminist at All About Women 2018. 
And we'll be back next week with more from the festival, so make sure you subscribe. You'll find us in most good podcast apps. See you later.